0: So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And also 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God, I pray for us as we hear from your word, God, that we would understand the whole counsel of God, that we would understand your whole world, your word, that we would compare scripture with scripture, that we would not be sidetracked by things that we read, that we take out of context, but God, that we would uh, just open our hearts to allow you to uh, impress your truth upon us, and that we would be surrendered to it. Pray that you would bless in the preaching, God. That you would open up our hearts. That you would open up your word to us, God. That you would help the preaching to be with, with power and with courage and with boldness and in truth. I ask this in Christ's name, Amen.
1: If you're uh, just here for the first time this Sunday, and uh, you're you're dropping you're being dropped into a series of messages that really grew out of a series of messages that we talked about basically for nine, ten months last year. And that was from the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And one of the things that we wanted to articulate from that particular book of the Bible was that the reality that we live in two realms. There's a spiritual world in which we live and there's a physical world in which we live. And that those two worlds intersect. And so the book of Revelation we went through it with the eye of trying to gain heaven's perspective on earth to allow heaven to open up for us things that take place in this world around us that defy explanation, and yet heaven gives us the explanation. And so it was an introduction to this reality that um, we live in not just a physical world that you can touch, taste, see, feel, and hear, but there's also a spiritual world all around us. Out of that, we realize that in this spiritual world, there is a battle that is taking place. And there is a battle that is being waged by Christ, who is our king and who is bringing all things in this world under dominion, under his feet. And that battle is being waged against Satan, and who is known as the great dragon or the ancient serpent, the one who deceived Eve. And the dragon has conspired together against God and God's people and the world with the beast from the sea and the beast from the land and those beasts represent in uh, some ways uh, governmental power national power and the weight that they bear on people to intimidate them the beast from the land is more of a seductive side of things a spiritual seduction to pull us away from worshiping god to worshiping things of the world and so it was a way for us to see the sort of the big level picture of the war that's going all around us for the souls of men and women. One of the things, though, that we realize from Revelation chapter 12 is that uh, Satan has been thrown down to heaven, and he no longer has access to heaven as he did even in the book of Job. But when he was cast down to earth, there was a woe proclaimed on the earth, woe to the earth and sea, for the devil has been thrown down to you. And the Bible describes how now he was down on this earth and he is in great anger because he knows his time is short. And he sets out to make war against the saints. So there's a particular um, target of his anger, and that is the people of God, those who name the name of Jesus and worship God. And so out of that came this desire to talk then a little bit about, well, what does that battle look like for us personally? How do we as people of God, um, who are part of this big world and understand the general realities of the world in which we live, how does that now impact us specifically? And so for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about the wiles of the devil, the schemes or the strategies of the devil, the way that Satan tries to tempt us or lure us um, to accuse us, because the Bible tells us very clearly, we are not to be ignorant of the devil's designs. Paul tells us that we need to learn how to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so part of what we've been trying to do is to to open the door to our thinking to recognize some of the strategies of the evil one. And we've seen that they really come to us in two main ways. One is through temptation and the other is through accusation. And that we need to learn how he tempts us and learn how he accuses us so that we can stand. I want to end this morning by Um, spending a few moments saying, well, what can we learn from that then? Why would God allow that? But there's a long introduction to that point. And part of that introduction is because I want to wrestle with this question. If God is sovereign and if God is all-powerful, as we believe and as the Bible describes him to be, and if Satan is a created being and the only reason he exists is because God created him and by God's will he was created then why would God allow the devil, an already defeated enemy, to continue to trouble the church? Scripture doesn't give us a full answer to that, but it assures us that God's purposes are always righteous, holy, lofty, and good, and ultimately for our good. And that being the case, then the devil is often useful in the purposes of God for our sanctification and our discipline. The reason I want to deal with this is because The wiles of Satan fall into a broader category of the way that the Bible describes Satan's work among the people of God. And so I want to take a few moments and talk about that. That's why we read Job chapter 1 and Corinthians chapter 12. Because just as a medical diagnosis can be serious if it is a misdiagnosis so can a spiritual misdiagnosis be serious. And so I want us to think about these things in a broader category as we continue to wrestle with the wiles and the schemes of the devil. So the, the general introduction comes under this one main point that Satan is often described as an instrument in the hand of God for our sanctification and our discipline. About five texts I want to open up for us to think about that. The first one Chris read from Second Corinthians chapter 12 verses seven to 10. I won't reread it, but I'll reiterate some of the points that were brought up or some of the things that Paul describes. He talks about the fact that he was given a thorn. The thorn is, in the scripture, it's used to describe a variety of things. one sort of the small little thorn that pricks and causes great pain, or a state that can obviously draw or cause great pain. Paul's not clear on whether it's a little prick or whether it is a big stake that he's experiencing when he describes this thorn that was given. But notice, he says, a thorn was given to me. And the source of that was God. It was God that gave Paul this thorn. It caused him incredible discomfort. Notice that Paul says three times he prays to the Lord that the Lord would take away this thorn thorn from him. Similar to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying three times to God to take the cup of God's wrath away from him and find another way to redeem God's people. And three times God refused to answer his question in the affirmative and take the thorn away from him. What is helpful for our purpose is to understand that he describes the thorn as a messenger from Satan. So clearly God was using Satanic forces to bring about in Paul the humbling that he needed to keep him from being proud over his revelations. Why would God send a messenger from Satan as a thorn in Paul's life? Well, the text tells us why. It says that it would check him from his pride. Paul had seen incredible things, visions of heavens that nobody else could see. And, and rather than being overinflated and proud and use that to, to wield as a sword against God's people, God kept him humble and allowed him not to share those visions. And the way God kept him humble was through this messenger from Satan. Whether it was a per- person or a physical ailment, we don't know. Secondly, why would God have done this? Well, it allowed Paul to learn what it meant to cast himself on God. And that's what this scripture tells us when Christ comes to him and says, My grace is sufficient for you. You don't need anything else. In fact, you don't even need deliverance from this. But my grace is sufficient for you. And God says to him that He says his power, God's power, God's ability to keep Paul safe, to keep him secure, even when he's being buffeted by a messenger from Satan, is not to take that away from him, but to make Paul strong in the midst of that. And so God didn't answer his prayer to remove that thorn. But what he did is he said, I will make you strong, Peter, as you endure that thorn. Second text we read from was Job. Job chapter 1. The Lord's words to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? That's tough. There is no one like him on earth, blameless, upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. This passage of Job, and one of these days, if the providence of God allows it, I want to preach through the book of Job. It's It's such a helpful book for the people of God. But it's one of the most troubling accounts of suffering in the scripture. For in it, we see how it's God that presents his servant Job to Satan. He says, look at my servant Job. Have you thought about him? And then how God uses Satan's harmful, evil intentions to accomplish his, his divine purposes in Job. And so God gives Satan permission to destroy all of Job's possessions, his family and his health, as long as he takes or does, spares his life. And as the story unfolds in the Book of Job, you see how Job wrestles with doubt and depression and discouragement and frustration you read about how his friends are just brutal towards him and are not comforters at all, but are really almost like they're messengers of evil to Job. And how Job prayed for vindication and God um, persisted in not giving him an answer. And all this happened without Job understanding the spiritual reality that was actually being played out in his physical reality. And again, in the book of Job, we see this tension between the physical world of Job and the spiritual world in the heavenlies and how they intersected. But Job knew nothing of that intersection at that particular point in his life. Why would God permit Satan to do such things in the life of such a man? I think one of the primary reasons is to demonstrate to the world that one can have a relationship with God that is not based on a performance. That one can have a relationship with God that is not based on what God does for me or what God doesn't do for me, or what I do for God or what I don't do for God. It is a relationship that is simply based purely on love. I think he does it also to reveal to you and I as believers that As Laurie read that passage of Scripture from Romans 8, 28, or 38, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing and no one that can snatch us out of the hand of God, that we are safe and secure in the hands of our Father. Clearly, God allowed it to later be able to teach Job about the vastness of God's power and sovereignty and wisdom and might and control. And Job never really got an answer to his question of why this happened and why God allowed it in his life. But at the end, he said, woe is me, I am nothing. As God used those difficulties in a life, brought about through the work of Satan, to bring Job to even a place of greater admiration and awe of God. And I think it helps us to understand this. Job was described as one of the most blameless, perfect men on earth, and yet he suffered intensely. Suffering is not something that is reserved for those who we might say deserve it. Suffering is something that God allows into our lives to perfect his image in us, whether we are Here, here, or here, whatever here is. Thirdly, Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold. This is Peter. Simon, Simon, behold. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that you would strengthen your brothers. Here we have now another follower of Jesus, Peter. Peter who was personally attacked by Satan. Notice again, though, it was only with God's permission. Satan had come, and Jesus said he has asked permission. And it seems evident from this text that it was granted because Jesus says, I have prayed for you that when you come through it, you will be able to encourage others. Why did God allow this? I think one of the most helpful parts of this text is to remind us of the intercession of christ on our behalf do you know that right now as a child of god christ is interceding for you it says, Christ ever li- lives to make intercession for us. So that when you're here, when you leave, when you go home, when you're faced with temptation, when you're faced with accusation, when you're faced with uh, adversity, and even if you haven't been able to pray, even if you've, your, your, your adversity is so strong that you don't even know what to say to God, Christ intercedes on your behalf. Is that not amazing? To know that Christ is praying for you no matter what you face? I think it also helps us realize the unbreakable strength of saving faith. Oh, yeah, Peter fell. He, he, he fell because of his fear. He fell because of his weakness, but he didn't fall spiritually. His heart was still with the Lord, and at the end of it, after he worked through his, 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 his sadness and his sorrow and his repentance, he was strengthened by Christ and reaffirmed as one of God's children. And sometimes God allows those testings into our lives to affirm his eternal hold on our lives. And then thirdly, it's the backdrop to Peter's ministry of encouragement to the people of God throughout the book of Acts. That God says, when, when you have turned again, I want you to go now and in, in that experience to go now and strengthen the believers as they face trials, as they face adversity, as they face difficulties, to know that Christ will hold you fast. Then there's Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. This is a bizarre... No, that's the wrong word. This is another difficult passage of scripture to wrap our heads around. How is it that the spirit of God will sometimes lead us into temptation? And I wonder if what's behind This experience of Jesus is part of his encouragement to the disciples as they pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because sometimes we can be proud in our strength. Sometimes we can be arrogant in our ability. Sometimes we can think, I've got this one. And we ought never to underestimate the power of Satan to tempt us and accuse us. And never walk into that boldly saying, all right, give me your best shot, Satan. So here though, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Why would God allow this in Jesus' life? I can think of a few reasons. One is to illustrate the truth that Jesus learned obedience through the things in which he suffered. That in temptation, temptation is not wrong. It's giving in to temptation that's wrong. But in temptation, we can learn about God's strength. We can learn about God sufficiently. We can learn about God's sovereignty. We can learn about God's pathways through temptation. And so Jesus learned obedience through even the temptation that he suffered at the hands of the evil one. I think also to give us an example that we can endure temptation. And how did Jesus endure it? He didn't rebuke Satan. He didn't challenge Satan. He simply said again and again, it is written. He relied on God and God's truth and God's promises and God's sovereignty and God's uh, God's declarations of care and provision and support and sustenance to withstand the temptations of the evil one. And so it's an example to us not to stand in our own strength, but to stand in the Lord. What about Revelation chapter 2? Both the churches to Smyrna and Pergamum, which are part of the book of Revelation. Listen carefully to these words. This is Jesus speaking to those churches. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then to those in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipathus, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We find our way again, don't we, back in the book of Revelation? And notice the warning here the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you will be tempted and you will have tribulation. There's no mention here to the people of God, okay, now you need to rally around and have prayer marches around Smyrna. You need to begin to cast out the the demons that are part of this city, and you need to come against the strongholds, and you need to rebuke the evil one. There's none of that. What there is, is don't be afraid. Endure, even to death. I know you live there. I know that Satan dwells there, but I control him. I have power over him. Trust me. Stand in me, even if that leads to death, because I will give you the crown of life. So why would God allow this to come to the churches in Pergamon and Smyrna? Why would God allow this to come to Parksville, to Las Vegas, to Monaco, to Britain? Why would God allow the churches in these cities, and some of them where Satan clearly dwells to suffer such things I think he says clearly to strengthen our resolve to trust God not to tell us to go fight the evil one but to strengthen our resolve to trust God to remind us that death is not the end I I love that song that we just sang there Uh, and that line what is it Um, I'll be home Um, this world is not our home and you know, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? If you've been on holidays, um, you know, uh, I got, I'll do it anyhow. Um, one of the things, I finally realized, before we go on holidays, Kathy goes on a cleaning frenzy. And uh, I never have understood it she, until I've gotten a little bit older. But the last thing she would do was make the bed and spray it with something and, you know, make sure the garbage is out and the dishes are clean and the house is spotless. You know what it's like to come home to a clean, fresh, warm house? There's something about coming home. Well, you know, this earth is not our home. And there's a longing that God has placed in us that can't be satisfied even by coming to our own home. It's only satisfied when we get to our eternal home. And there's something beautiful about that line, I'll be home. And so death is not the last word in our life. Being with Jesus is the last word on our life. And I think, finally, why does God allow Satan to trouble his church in a particular place? To show us that while Satan's throne may be on earth, God's throne is in heaven, the control tower of the universe. And that throne trumps all earthly powers and all invisible powers in this world. Sixth, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Or in 1 Timothy there, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, this I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. Stop there. We wage the good for- warfare. How do we fight against the evil one? with orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right thinking. It's, it's right doctrine. It's right truth. It's strong in the faith. Orthopraxy is right living. It's, it's living with a clean conscience, living with a pure conscience. And how does the devil attack us? He attacks our conscience. And when we sin, he has things to accuse us. So if we have a good conscience, he has what? Nothing to accuse us of. And if we have right doctrine... We have the word of God to stand in when he comes and tempts us. Anyhow, he goes on and says, By rejecting this, holding the faith in a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Wow. Those are the kind of scriptures we read over, aren't they, in our devotions? But here again, we wrestle with the way in which God used Satan to discipline those who are children of God. Paul tells the church to hand over the so-called brother or the brother who was sleeping with his father's wife, unrepentant. And he says, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. And then Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are likely pastors or leaders in the church, who made a shipwreck of their faith. Shipwreck doesn't mean death. Paul was shipwrecked three times and he didn't die. They made a shipwreck of their faith so that they may learn not to blaspheme. See, there's something about the church of God. It is, you know, we, we talk about this sometimes. There is, it is amazing to be part of a family of God to experience the love of God, the fellowship of God, the rebuke of God's people, the, the warmth of God's people, the provision of God's people, the worship of God's people, the care of God's people. There is something about being part of a family like this. And this is one of the best families in the world, I'll have you know. To be cast out of this and to be set loose in the world which Satan rules and to be separated from the love of the people of God, I can't think of a worst discipline in my life. But God uses even the ruler of this world to discipline rebellious children so that their souls will be saved and that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So why does God allow this? I've already said that. To deal with the corruption of our flesh sometimes And to teach us, in this case, not to blaspheme. I mention these things because I want us to have a balance as we're wrestling with the wiles of Satan and the schemes of Satan. Because we need to be careful lest we somehow find ourselves actually praying against or working against the will of God in our lives, trying to foil his work by trying to say that Satan should be gone and cast out and have no place in our life. We just need the bigger perspective of Scripture. And finally, because we know that those who love God and that for those who love God, all things work together for good, even the temptations and the accusations, the adversity that comes to us through the evil one, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. We may say, Satan, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I do want to say one more thing here, um, and I think maybe one or two people stayed back from the first service because I said I would deal with this in the second service because I did in the first service, but this means that I won't be able to deal with the last part of my sermon in this service, but I will at the next service. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you want the whole meal deal, you've got to come back tonight. I, I hesitate to talk about this, but I, it's a question that I have been asked so many times Um, in the course of ministry. What does the Bible say about the Christian in demon possession? Can a believer be possessed, indwelt by a demon? I think the short answer, I don't think, the short answer for me is no. There is not a single illustration in the entire Bible of anyone ever casting a demon out of a believer. All the demon-possessed people dealt with in the Bible were unbelievers, and in many of those cases, this casting out was totally a part even of their will. But there are compounding pieces of Scripture which lead me to that short answer, which is no. In no particular order. John chapter 3 tells us, ...that when we become a follower of Jesus Christ... ...the Spirit of God works in us in such a way that we are born again. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old is passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. We are new people. We are new creations. We are God's creations. And therefore, what is old is gone and what new, what is new has come. Secondly, the Bible again and again tells us... ...that our body is the temple of God in whom the Spirit of God dwells. In the latter part of Corinthians, it says that we are the sanctuary of the living God, that God dwells in us, that our bodies are the temple of God through his Spirit. I've already mentioned the fact that the Bible says that we are new creations in Christ, and it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. There's another verse in scripture where it says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When we become a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus comes to dwell in us with his spirit. And so greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. That's a reference to Satan and the demonic forces. And then Paul says, what fellowship can light have with darkness? If as believers we are encouraged not to have uh, marriages with unbelievers, not to even have, I think, serious... um, um, um uh, sort of partnerships with unbelievers, because of the tension between lightness and darkness. What fellowship can there be? How would God ever allow there to be that confusion in the life of a believer? There's a new power that controls our lives. Paul is told that he's to go out into the world to open the eyes of the unbelieving so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. When we become a follower of Christ, we are now part of a new kingdom. We are not Trojan horses in that new kingdom. We are part of that new kingdom as sons and daughters of God. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Therefore, Satan has no power, no control over our lives. We belong to God. And so as I see it, Scripture overwhelmingly speaks to the fact that regarding the child of God, we belong to God God lives in us. There is no fellowship with light and darkness. Therefore, we cannot be possessed by a demon. I think that's the overwhelming teaching of Scripture. Finally, you've got my points on your notes. Uh, I just want to end here, if I can. Satan's grand strategy is to keep the afflicted soul from looking at Christ. I just, I I want, and we need to bring it all back to here because everything that Satan is about and all of his, the, the, the difficulties that he brings to us and all of the temptations and all of the accusations, all of it has got this, I think, main thing in mind is to keep us from looking at Christ. So instead of looking at Christ, we focus on Satan. Instead of listening to the encouragements of Christ, we listen to the lies of Satan. Instead of looking to the great physician of our souls, we listen to the... the, the the, the lies of Satan that exposes the wounds in our heart and, and that Satan is able to with his lies and with his work to bring this cloud to our life, this fog into our life, this mist into our life this favor or this, this sort of vapor into our life so that it seems that like Christ is obscured by all the darkness that he brings into our life. We who live on the west coast are familiar with an ailment that I would say that I don't know, I'm just guessing. Maybe a third of you have here. And it's called SAD. Seasonal affective disorder. And seasonal affective disorder is depression. It's a downcastness that comes from losing sight of the sun from living for so many days, week in, week out, without ever having sight of the sun. All we can see is the clouds. All we can see is the mists. All we can see is the fogs. All we want to see is just a few rays of sunshine. And that's why half of you are not here for six months of the year. (laughs) I was thinking about this. I think there's a spiritual version of sad. I think Satan is effective in the lives of so many of God's people and causing us to live below the clouds so that we lose sight of Christ. And Colossians tells us to set our minds on things above, things where where Christ dwells, to, to say, I know there's clouds, but above the clouds, there's Christ. And I'm going to keep looking. I know that I might not be able to see it. I know that it's dark, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that he's up there. Christina was telling me about her brother who's a pilot. And I love this phrase, and so I'm going to give it to you because I think it certainly applies to our Christian. He's a pilot. And he said to her one day when she was home just a few weeks ago, I never have a cloudy day at the office because I'm always above the clouds. If you are a Christian, you ought never to have a cloudy day that never ends. That you ought to go above the clouds day in and day out because that is where Christ is. And to look past all those clouds dark things that Satan throws in your life and say, but I have set my mind on Jesus Christ. I have set my eyes on Jesus Christ. He is my help. He is my strength. He is my savior. He is my hope. He will deliver me and he will take me home to be with him when my days are over. May God help us to not lose sight of Christ. Father, thank you for your Word, thank you for our time together this morning. Spirit of God, this is one of those days where we all always need you, but I feel in particular just need you to clear away all the chaff, all the stuff that's been said that is extra and to just drive us to your word. Help us, I pray, encourage us, I pray. Draw our eyes to Christ, I ask, in Jesus' name, amen.